Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than a million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss what happened when our guest, astronaut Chris Hadfield, went blind during a spacewalk and how he made it out alive. We talk about the mental toughness necessary to survive extremely dangerous situations just like that. We discuss in depth how astronauts deal with fear. We look at the vital importance of powerful training to deal with huge risks and much more with Chris Hadfield. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. It's our most popular guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free, along with another awesome bonus guide that's a surprise. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list. Second, you're going to get curated weekly emails from us every week, including our Mindset Monday email, which listeners have been loving. It's a short email that shares articles, stories, and links of things that we found interesting in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get listener exclusive content and a chance to shape the show, vote on guests change our intro music like when we rolled out our new intro a couple weeks ago and weigh in on many important things that are going on with the show. So again, join the email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go right now, you can just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. 
In our previous episode, we discussed how a neurologist's perspective on your brain fundamentally ignores the health of the entire system. We talked about your gut biome's role in depression, mood regulation, and how the microbiome controls your behavior and emotions. We asked why it is so hard for people to break negative eating habits, looked at the biochemistry of addiction, discussed the incredible importance of understanding your microbiome and gut health, and much more with Dr. Kulreet Chowdhury. If you want to get the neuroscience behind your gut and your microbiome, listen to that episode. Now for the interview. And I want to make a quick note before we dive in. Uh, Chris had to dial in via phone, so the audio quality on this episode is a little bit rougher than some of our typical interviews. Remember, we're interviewing experts across the world, people in many different industries, and in many cases, you know, astronauts like Chris are not professional podcasters. They don't have a professional recording setup. We do the best we can to try and deliver the highest quality audio possible, but I just wanted to give you a heads up that the audio quality on this interview is not the best that we've done. But the conversation's amazing. I know you're going to get a ton out of it. So let's dive right in. Today, we have another incredible guest on the show, astronaut Chris Hadfield. Chris, who the BBC called the most famous astronaut since Neil Armstrong, has been part of several space missions with the Canadian Space Agency and NASA. He served as the Chief of Robotics and the Chief of International Space Station Operations. Chris was the first Canadian to command the International Space Station and was awarded the NASA Exceptional Service Medal and inducted to the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. In addition, his work as an engineer and astronaut, Chris is an author, musician, and speaker. Chris, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, thanks, Matt. It's really nice to be joining you, and that, that's almost embarrassing to listen to all of that introduction, but thanks for mentioning everything. Well, you've had quite a storied career and some really, really fascinating experiences. So I'd love to start out, you know, for listeners who may not be familiar with you and some of your background, tell us what, you know, how did you become an astronaut and what were you doing before that? Well, the simple question, or I guess answer to your question is, I decided to be an astronaut when I was a kid and I started trying to turn myself into one starting at like 10 years old. And I really had no idea, but I thought astronauts fly in space, so I'm going to learn to fly. Astronauts have to know how to operate complex machinery, so I'm going to become an engineer. I noticed that a lot of astronauts traditionally at the beginning were test pilots, so I thought I'm going to try and become a military test pilot and see if all that works or not. And if it doesn't, that's all still a bunch of interesting things to be a pilot and a test pilot and an engineer. And so that's the path I followed. And I served 25 years in the Air Force and became a test pilot, actually even serving with the, with the Navy, U.S. Navy, as a, as a test pilot. And at the end of all that, I even got a university degree in Tennessee, in fact. But after all of that, I got selected as an astronaut and then served 21 years as an astronaut. That's fascinating. And both of those things, you know, how do you, I, I know it's such a competitive and, and challenging field. I mean, even be, just becoming a test pilot, let alone becoming an astronaut, what do you think enabled you to make your way through that incredibly difficult selection process? Three different things, Matt. I think, let me get through all that. Number one was an unquenchable burning desire. Yeah. I mean, you really, really have to want to do this just because there's so many dead ends and, and obstacles and unlikely opportunities. The second is a huge amount of work. I love working. I grew up on a farm I think work is interesting and productive and it gives me satisfaction. So I think in addition to an unquenchable desire is also a big appetite for hard work. And then the third is luck. I mean, if I'd been born 
10 years prior, I couldn't have been an astronaut. You know, it's just timing and, you know, health and circumstance and such. There's always going to be some luck involved. But uh, I think if you have a burning desire, you have a huge amount of ability to work at something and then accept that there's luck involved. Now, that's not a bad recipe for no matter what you're dreaming of doing. You know, one of the one of the most famous things that, that you're kind of known for is this infamous spacewalk that you talk about in your TED Talk. Could you share that story with the audience? Sure. I've done two spacewalks to help build things orbiting the Earth. I, I helped build part of the International Space Station. Spacewalks are hard. They take many, many years of training, development, invention, practice. But even while they're happening, they're physically very demanding and very technically complicated. You know, nothing like you see in the movies ever. But stuff goes wrong during spacewalks all the time, naturally. We try and keep it safe because your, your danger is very high. And touch wood, we've never lost an astronaut during a spacewalk to this point. But we recognize the risk and the danger of them. And during my first spacewalk, there was contamination inside the suit that got into one of my eyes, sort of stopped it from working. So suddenly I couldn't see out of my left eye. And I, I just kept working because I figured, well, maybe it'll clear. But And I couldn't do anything about it anyway. I couldn't rub my eye or anything. It's stuck inside a helmet. But my eye was irritated enough by the contamination. It was tearing up. And without gravity, the tears don't go anywhere. They just stay on your eye like this big ball of contaminated salt water and tear. And eventually that ball of contamination got big enough that that unfortunately it bridged the size of my nose and flowed this little bubble of contaminated stuff flowed into my other eye and contaminated my other eye. So then both my eyes were, were contaminated and I was blinded during my first spacewalk. So that was a difficult thing to deal with, being outside, holding on to the outside of the ship, suddenly unable to see. And I think if we hadn't practiced, if we'd taken it lightly, if we hadn't done all the work in advance, that would have been cripplingly scary and unsolvable. But I was outside with a guy named Scott Perzinski, a classmate of mine, really competent fellow. And we'd practiced for years and years and helped invent everything we were going to do out there. And and one of the things we had practiced is just in the category of if one of us it becomes unable for whatever reason, you know, you might have a loss of communication. So your suit might short out or you might lose oxygen or you might have a leak in your suit or whatever. You might have a heart attack. Who knows? So we call that incapacitated crew rescue. And so Scott and I had practiced that. In fact, it's one of the things you have to qualify at in order to be trusted to do a spacewalk. So in this case, I was I was incapacitated to some degree. I, I could talk. I could think. I was still fine. I could communicate with everybody. I just couldn't see. And without being able to see, you really can't do the job out there. I talked to everybody, and we ended up realizing that it might be something pretty serious contaminating my suit. And so I opened up the purge valve in consultation with Mission Control down in Houston, opened up the purge valve on my suit to let the contaminated atmosphere around my head flush and squirt out into space. And then tapping into my limited reserves of pressurized oxygen in the suit. So listening to the oxygen hiss out of my suit alone out in the universe. And the universe is kind of big to repressurize with one oxygen tank. So I knew I was going to lose at that eventually. But what it did was it brought enough fresh oxygen and therefore atmosphere into my suit that it, it allowed the contamination to evaporate around my eyes and sort of build a crusty ring around my eyes. And 
my eyes continued tearing. But after a while, the contamination got dilute enough that I could see again and could get back to work. And my eyes stopped tearing. And it turned out just to be the, the anti-fog that we used on the visor, sort of a mixture of oil and, and harsh soap. And it's as if someone had just squirted oily, harsh soap into your eye. Your eye doesn't work anymore. So nothing super technical, just a thing, but enough that it definitely upped the danger and decreased our chances of success. But we practiced and prepared enough that the emission control allowed us to continue and finish the entire spacewalk, actually, and got everything done. And since then, we've changed the uh, anti-fog solution that we use. <laughs> In truth, we use uh, Johnson's No More Tears now, which were probably what we should have used right from the get-go. That little problem manifested itself into me being blind alone out on my very first spacewalk. Pretty interesting place to be. And what goes through your mind in, in that moment when you completely lose your vision and you're, and you're floating in outer space? Well, in my case, it was, number one, what caused it? I'm thinking, okay, what, what can be causing, what's irritating my eyes? Why am I struck blind by this? So, I mean, I've studied all of the stuff very carefully. I know how all the systems in the suit work really well. So trying to visualize through all of the schematics and chemistry and everything of what might be causing this problem. Two, frustration because I'm not able to do the things that I'm there for. I'm supposed to be building this huge robot arm, the Canada arm, onto the outside of the spaceship. And, and now I'm useless. I'm just there hanging on, waiting for this problem to clear. So kind of frustrated at this event. And then three, having to tell Houston, because I know just what a a grenade that's going to be in mission control to have me tell everybody down there I'm blind. You know, they're just have a real serious problem to try and give me good advice on. So I'm just thinking about all those things. But the real bottom line is, am I okay or not? And as soon as you establish to yourself that, okay, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm fine. The only thing is I can't see, you know, so, so what, if you close your eyes, you can't see. I mean, it's just a matter of just something to deal with not a problem I wanted to deal with, and hopefully nothing that's going to strike me permanently blind, but still just one sense out of five that I lost. And let's let's try and solve the problem. Let's work the problem and get to the solution to that. Let's not get all worried and panicked and, and uh, overdramatic about the thing. Let's just, let's deal with it and move on. And how do you cultivate the mental toughness to be in such an incredibly high stress situation and maintain that kind of calm presence of mind to be able to problem solve and work your way through it. That's why NASA hires the astronauts that they do. NASA is currently going through an astronaut selection and 18,000 people have applied for like eight or 10 slots, eight or 10 positions. So if you have 18,000 people to choose from, you don't just choose people that are fit or you don't just choose people that have a certain type of university degree. You try and choose people that not only are fit and have a certain type of university degree, but also have a proven ability to make good decisions under really complex and high stakes situations. So who would you hire? You hire test pilots because test pilots are used to balancing all of that stuff, a very dangerous job. Test pilots are killed all the time because the job itself is, is dangerous, but also have that a learned and trained ability to deal with huge number of factors simultaneously. You're flying the airplane, you're testing something new, you're dealing with unexpected circumstances, and you still at the end of it have to somehow get home and land. And Or we hire medical doctors 
and not just run-of-the-mill medical doctors, but as competent as possible. Or we hire people who have run large stage of life where not only do they have all the raw material, but they have the proven ability to make good decisions when the consequences really truly matter. And when you never have enough information, you've shown that you are the type of person that can be trusted to make the right call and not just get all panicked. And then that's that's how we do it. The right type of people chosen and then years and years of training and preparation and study. I, I was an astronaut for 21 years and I was only in space for six months. So for 20 and a half years, I was training and studying and preparing and helping to support and invent spaceflight. And that's how you deal with it. Wow, that ratio is it really demonstrates the point which which I think is vital that training and practice is so important. Talk to me a little bit more about that and how critical that is. You know, for somebody who's I'm trying to draw this back to almost an actionable insight for someone who's listening in, how vital is training and how can people integrate that that lesson of how they can build toughness in their own lives? Well, I think a lot of people just count on good looks and charm and you know, and luck and such. And if you, if you do that, that's fine. Sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. And if the consequences are low, then so what? You know, so big deal. So, so this didn't work out. But if the consequences of what you're trying to do are life and death and also immense financial consequence, where if you get this wrong, then you have wasted an entire shuttle flight or you've ruined a piece of equipment that cost a lot of people a lot of money. So we take it immensely seriously. And if that's the type of thing you're trying to accomplish, then you don't just count on on random events. You don't just count on luck. You do. It changes your entire job. Your job is now to try to do everything that is possible prior to this event happening so that you could optimize your chances of success. And to do that, you don't visualize success. You visualize failure. Like in the book, my first book, The Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, what I call the power of negative thinking. There's not much point in just visualizing success because if it happens, it's great. If it doesn't, then visualizing it didn't help. Visualizing failure serves you well. What if, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. What is the most likely thing to go wrong? And am I ready to face it? And how do I know? So let's practice that thing going wrong and see if I can deal with it. And if I can't, let's practice it again and again and again until, okay, if that thing goes wrong, I now know how to deal with it. And then let's move on to the next most probable thing to go wrong. And let's practice that until we understand it. And then the next thing and the next thing. I don't know. We practice 10,000 different things. And that's what astronauts do for a living. You know, they visualize success. They practice for failure all the time. They, they live in a world of negative thinking because then when something's coming along, like a spacewalk, and suddenly you're struck blind, you're like, okay. So what's really gone wrong here? What am I dealing with? What could have caused this? What are the impacts? What can I do next? What did we practice? What do we know about this? You know, and how can we improve it for the future? It just changes what your role is. You don't count on luck. You count on your own learned and practiced ability to deal with the probable things that are going to go wrong. And that applies to everything. It applies to driving your car down the highway. I mean, eventually in your life, Matt, driving down a road, you are going to have a tire go flat. But how many times have you practiced it? How many times have you actually looked at your model of car, whether it's front wheel drive, all wheel drive, rear wheel drive? What type of steering do you have? What type of run flat tires do you have? You, all that information, you know, in one minute, you can look it up. What is the right thing to do if you're going 60 down the highway and your front left tire blows? 
what should you do? It's a thing that's going to happen sometime in your life. And you can learn exactly what you're supposed to do in 10 minutes on the internet. And then the next time you're driving your car, you can practice it 10 times. Just say, okay, right now, my front left, you know, on some empty stretch of road while you're just driving along anyway, my front left tire just blew out. Okay, what are my actions? Do I break? Do I not break? Do I downshift? Do I go into neutral? What do I do? Do I go left? Do I go right? And just practice it. And after you've done it, looked it up and done it 10 times, then you just file that away inside yourself as, okay, this is one of the things I'm now ready for. And astronauts treat everything like that flat tire. That's how we fly in space. It's amazing that when you look across people who've been incredibly successful in, in various different disciplines, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, you know, the, the co-chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, the guy we talk about all the time on the show. I'm thinking about people like the, the ancient Stoics. Like they all have very, very similar lessons, which is this idea that it's not necessarily about focusing on and visualizing the things that can go right. It's about figuring out the most probable things that can go wrong and planning and optimizing and building a strategy so that you can minimize those things. Yeah, I don't, that's the only way that NASA has been successful in, in putting people that are up on the space station right now and, and driving our probe through the plumes of Enceladus that are going around Saturn right now and you know flying up along to, beyond Pluto and driving the probes around on Mars and all the stuff we're doing. It is purely the result of setting ourselves a goal and then starting to visualize failure and then learning incrementally better and better how to get closer and closer to what it is we're dreaming of and not counting on, on luck. No astronaut launches for space with their fingers crossed. That's not how we deal with risk. That's just not an actual way to, to, to step up to something. And, and anything worth doing in, in life, the people that you just mentioned, they have a set of goals in life, things that they value, things that they want to get done. Any of the choices that they make have risk, whether it's personal, reputational, financial, life or death, anything worth doing in life has risk. And then the real question is, how are you changing who you are so that you have a better chance of succeeding when you face that particular risk? That's really the whole, I don't know, the whole recipe for success in space flight and really, I think, in anything worthwhile in life. So that brings up a couple of points that I, that I want to dig into. One of them is the, the relationship between danger and fear and, you know, being somebody who's been a test pilot and astronaut, I mean, you've, you've put yourself in some incredibly dangerous situations, I guess, by, by, by most people's estimations. How do you view the interaction between those two things and, and are they the same? Yeah, people ask you all the time, you know, was launch scary? Or, boy, doing a spacewalk, that must be scary. And, and I, I became aware years and years ago as a test pilot and then as an astronaut that things aren't scary, just people are scared. And they're fundamentally different. You know, some people are afraid of whatever, a mouse, you know, or, or, and some people aren't. Some people are afraid of, I don't know, marriage, and some people aren't. Some people are afraid of flying. The thing doesn't change. The mouse doesn't change, whether you're afraid of it or not, or the, or the airplane or the idea of flight or whatever. The real question is, what are you prepared for and what are you unprepared for? And if you're unprepared for something, then really the only recourse that we have is to be afraid because fear causes physiological changes in your body. When you are afraid, 
your body changes, you know, you shiver or the blood drains from some part of your body or adrenaline gets released into your veins or, you know, your body recognizes that, holy cow, you know, this guy isn't ready for the thing that's happening. This, this wildebeest that just jumped out of the woods at him. He wasn't ready for that. And so I need to change momentarily this person's physiology so that they can deal with it. And we call that change of physiology fear. Because it, it allows us maybe for a momentary period to be able to face up to a risk. But you don't want to fly a spaceship just by using adrenaline in your veins. It's harmful to your body, but it also it's transient. That's not exactly how we fly spaceships. It's not relying on, on super quick muscle twitch and reaction. It relies on complex, reasoned, uh, practiced, deep technical understanding of how to do things. And you can draw the parallel to just about anything. I don't know, learning to use a skateboard. First time you get on a skateboard, you're useless at it and you fall. And so you're kind of a little bit scared getting on a skateboard at first when you're a kid or, or even worse as an adult where you don't have the skills yet. And, and you have a pretty good chance of falling and, and at least skinning your knee, if not breaking a leg or, or busting a tooth or something, because you are incompetent at it. But if you spend the time, and you turn your natural talent into a honed ability. If you practice skateboarding until you can get on one, you know, not even think about it. And now you can start to do tricks and jumps and, and all the cool things that the good skateboarders can do. You get to a point where it is no longer scary at all. In fact, it's just sort of a freedom. It's a cool thing. And the skateboard didn't change. The skateboard's exactly the same. The physics didn't change. It's just you that changed. And that's the difference between fear and danger. Things aren't scary. Just people are scared. And the only reason you're scared is because you didn't do your homework. You didn't practice. You didn't get ready. You're just trying to count on luck to carry you through this thing. And it'll work for some things in life. But I think that gives you then the choice of, of you can go through life afraid. And one of our ways of describing perpetual fear is stress. I mean, try it and you can be overwhelmed by it, but just pick off one thing at a time. You know, what is the thing that I don't know how to do that I wish I could that is causing me danger or, or causing me stress? And let's try and get good at that thing today. Let's spend the next hour getting good at that thing. So I don't longer have to be afraid of that. And then let's go on to the next thing and the thing after that and the thing after that. And that's how I, I trained as a pilot. I used to be a downhill ski racer as well. Same thing. And, and that's how I trained as a test pilot. And that is the absolute essence of training to fly in space is to recognize the difference between danger and fear and then to use all the available time to be ready for the risk so that you optimize your chances of success. What a great point. I, I really, really like that idea that, that fear is essentially lack of preparation. And if you prepare yeah. enough, if you train enough, it's possible to overcome any fear. And really, it, in many ways, fear, the, the kind of logical conclusion of that is that fear is simply a signal telling you that you need to do more preparation. Yeah, or don't do that thing. Like, I'm afraid of heights. Just generically, I think everybody should be afraid of heights. Because if you're in a position where you can fall without any control, I mean, you don't have to fall from much higher than your own standing height to do yourself damage. You can crack your skull 
just by falling from your own standing height. That's kind of the limit of, of how tall evolution has allowed our bodies to be. Because if you fall from any more of your own height, you die. So, but if you're standing on the edge of a cliff and one tiny little random gust of wind or, or lack of attention will kill you, then your body should be screaming at you that this is not where you ought to be. And either either anchor yourself to something or do something else, but don't, don't put yourself at risk you know, if there's no benefit to what you're doing. Now, if, if this is a thing you really want to do, if there's some great benefit to it, you know, this is accomplishing some goal for you, then, then that's a different set of circumstances and you need to build all the skills you have so that you won't fall. But the raw idea of fear is really just trying to protect you against, against hurting yourself, against ending your life unnecessarily. So you should listen to fear, but you should not keep fear from allowing you to dictate the constraints of your own life if you can't. You, sh you should look, hey, this is important to me just because I'm afraid. Well, the afraid part is just because I'm not good at this yet. Let's start gaining skills so I can do this thing that's important to me and, and not just spend my life being stressed and wringing my hands and crossing my fingers and being afraid. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. 
Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So another example that you've shared around this is the idea of dealing with spiders or fear of spiders and walking through spider webs. Can you share that example? When I was trying to explain to folks how is it that you can change your own threshold of fear, one of the examples that occurred to me was spiders, because a lot of people are afraid of spiders. And there's a good reason for that, of course, in that some spiders are quite venomous. The venom that they have has a really nasty negative effect. And there are some that are, you know, that are really awful that, that can cause, that's a neurotoxin or, or cause really bad damage to the human body. And, you know, Black Widow has a certain reputation or a, a, a brown recluse or, you know, they've even got bad names. Um, but, of course, most spiders are fine. Almost every spider on earth is just a little bug, you know, and it's just being a spider and it, it's terrified of you because you're huge and can squish it at any moment. And if you have no understanding of spiders at all, then you could treat every single little thing in the corner of your eye that might turn out to be a spider as the most venomous spider that exists. And some people do. They treat every single little bug that they see as potential death. And that's unreasonable, of course, because the odds of actually running into one of those spiders that does you harm is really low. So rather than spending your life screaming and running every time you see a a bug, why not say, okay, some spiders are bad for me, but most aren't. Where I live, how many spiders are actually poisonous or, or venomous? How many actually do me harm? And for a lot of the places in the world, you'll find that the answer is none. There are no spiders at all that exist in where you live that are venomous. Or maybe there's just one or two. And and you could look up where they actually exist. Maybe they're only in a certain type of cave or in a certain type of circumstances. And maybe they're easily identifiable. You know, like a black widow has a great big red hourglass on its back. It couldn't have a – it's got like a danger marking on it just to let you know. And then say, okay, so now I know what the actual danger is. If it's just any other type of spider, I can treat it like a ladybug. It's got the same threat to me as a ladybug. But there's a couple spiders I have to watch out for, or this type. And what do their nests look like? And I won't walk into one of those type of webs, like the the small web, like a black widow that they build close to the ground off in dark corners. And then say, okay, so now I know what the risk is. But I still have this fundamental sort of gut reaction, my, my instinctive reaction of fear and every time I feel a spider web on my face, you know, walking in the dusk, I, I, you know, I, I feel that same raw animal fear. So then say to yourself, but that can't be a venomous spider. They don't build spider webs up here. That can't be it. So I'm just being silly. But to overcome it, what I recommend is walk through spider webs deliberately. Find a spider web that you know actually isn't a threat and walk through it and then find another one and walk through that. Go up to an attic where there's a whole bunch of spider webs that are obviously not any sort of threat and just walk through them. Get get over your primitive, illogical, instinctive, fearful reaction 
and actually look into the information, find out, use our brain, you know, and figure it out and practice and practice and practice. And after you walk through a hundred spider webs with no consequence, then you can start to change your fundamental instinctive reaction. You can start to control your own instinctive fear. And now you can make your decisions based on reality and not just on, on the same amount of intellect that a, um, the simplest forms of life put into uh, their decision-making. So we treat everything like that in the space business. How does this spider web actually, or how does this spider actually shape up as a threat? What's the real threat? What does the real threat look like? How am I going to recognize the real threat from all the noise of the non-threats so that I don't overreact? Because if you don't know what to be afraid of, then you're afraid of everything. And I don't think that's a useful way to go through life. I, I just think it's self-destructive. I love the example of, of, of forcing yourself to walk through spider webs. And, and I wanted to, to hear that story because to me, you know, I personally am kind of afraid of spiders. And so it was a very relevant story. I almost instinctively hear, and maybe this is just a lack of, a, a lack of knowledge, but I, I sort of instinctively hear myself saying like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea to go walk through some spider webs, but like, but what if, and I think it's the what if that, that always gets me and like makes me more fearful it's like, what if that web that I happen to walk through happens to be a dangerous spider? Right. So that's that's where your intellect comes into it, Matt, and actually look and do the work in advance. Don't just count on randomness. I mean, if you're afraid of jaguars, that doesn't mean you need to be afraid of kittens, house cat kittens. But they're both cats. But you could spend your entire life terrified of kittens because you're also afraid of jaguars, but it doesn't make any sense. And yet, for whatever reason, you're going to put spiders in the same category. So, so just do the work in advance. If you have no information, then you have to assume the worst, but you have your whole life to gather information. So why not do it? <laughs> why, why just assume the worst all the time? The cat and the kitty jaguar example definitely brings that into light and shows sort of how ridiculous that framework of belief is. Yeah. If it's difference between belief and knowledge, if you're just running around instinctively reacting on belief that you may as well be a, a pug, you know, I have a pug, he's a delightful dog, but he's not a deep thinker. And he just, he just deals with stuff the best he can and just instinctively reacts to everything. But, but we're not pugs. We are the most rational of all beings. And, and what do you choose to do with, with your ability to think, I think has a big effect on uh, what happens in your life. You know, that, that, that kind of makes me think or transitioning a little bit into another thing that you've talked about, which I fully agree with is this idea that dovetailing the concept of risk and danger, the idea that most people's perception of how dangerous their lives are is, is actually totally disconnected from the reality that today we live in the safest, healthiest, you know, period in ever in human history. And we're, you know, the, the world is actually a much better place than people realize. Absolutely. Everybody wants to feel significant. Of course, it's a fundamental human natural need and that's good. And you should recognize that you are no different than everybody else. You want to feel worthwhile and significant, but one of the ways to increase your own significance is to exaggerate the problems that exist. The people that hold up the sign, the end of the world is coming. It's because, you know, the world's been here for four and a half billion years. 
And this person has, has painted a sign and stuck it up here in their particular 75 years on Earth because they want this to be the most significant 75 years out of all the four and a half billion because it makes them feel good. But it's, it's kind of ridiculous. You know, the, the world is, isn't about to suddenly end just because this person held up a sign. And, and so I think that natural lack of temporal perspective of yourself and the desire to feel significant tends to let you over-exaggerate the risks that exist in your life. You know, it's never been harder to whatever, to raise children or to, or to do anything. You know, it's never been harder than it is now. But boy, you sure don't have to go very far back in human history to find examples that counter that argument. Like, gosh, the 400 million people that died of smallpox in the last century, which is the population of Europe, or the number of people that were killed in World War I and how, or the influenza epidemic of 1919-1920, you know, that killed millions and hundreds of millions of people around the world, or, or, or whatever, child diseases. It, I mean, uh, the number of people that make it their full natural lifespan now is higher than it's ever been for our species in, worldwide. And the opportunity, I mean, just in the in the cell phone you hold in your hand, you have the Library of Alexandria. You have all of some total of human knowledge available to you. And we've eliminated a lot of the diseases that used to plague us all the time. So, yeah, life isn't easy. But I think in an effort to to sometimes, I don't know, feel a little more significant, we tend to over-exaggerate the problems that face us right now. And, and looking back into history and studying the problems that our predecessors faced, hopefully that that helps put us into a, a little uh, clearer image in the mirror. In many ways, it's, it's it's almost the same lesson, which is the idea that the more informed you are, the more you understand how reality really is, the less fear you have about these sort of vague things that are that are out there that people are worried about and afraid of. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And people say often to me, "Gosh, would you take a one-way trip to Mars?" And I, I sort of remind myself all the time that, hey, we're all on a one-way trip. You, know, you can't get away from that. It'll, you know, you get your years and then life is done. So get over that part. Don't don't, don't pretend that you're going to be the first person ever to never die. So so the real focus then is is not to, you know, prolong some vestige of life for as desperately long as possible, but actually to do the things that are important to you while you are alive. That's the real key. What was it? What is important to me, and what should I be working on? Because there's a randomness to life, and and what should I be working on? What should? How should I be trying to change who I am? What are the things that I love and that I want to do and that I hope to get done? And let's work on those, and not just spend my life cowering under the under the pillows in hope that somehow that'll extend my life by one more day. You know, deal with the difference between between fear and danger. And, and recognize that you are kind of the thinking link between those two so that one doesn't need to overpower the other. Let's change directions. Uh, I want to talk about another kind of quote or idea that you've shared, which is the idea that the sky is not the limit. Yeah, I just I think it's funny when you see some advertising campaign and somebody says the sky is the limit. And I'm going, wow, have you ever looked through a telescope? Have you ever gone outside at night? <laughs> just thinking, what a funny phrase. The sky's the limit. Maybe that made sense before the Wright brothers got flying at Kitty Hawk or before Jaeger went through the speed of sound there in whatever, at 47, or Al Shepard flew in space in 61, or Neil and Buzz walked to the moon in 69, or, or Peggy, who's commanding the space station right now, you know, when she did, this is her second time commanding the International Space Station. 
I mean, the sky is is this uh, ghostly reflection of light that is the tiniest of vestige of onion skin thin sheath around the hard rock of our planet. That's what the sky is. So, so to think the sky is the limit, it, it just makes me laugh. And I think that kind of hints at the you know one of the things that I've I've heard a lot of astronauts talk about is this idea that viewing the Earth from outer space fundamentally shifts your perspective and and gives you a much deeper understanding of the shared, you know, journey that humanity is on and, and the, the fragileness of earth. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that experience and what that was like? Sure. Earth is incredibly tough. Uh, earth has been here four and a half billion years, which, which is an almost, it's such a big number. It's almost infinity, four and a half billion years. And we've recently found fossils on Earth from 4 billion years ago, the earliest of the tube worms that were growing at the at the rift at the bottom of the oceans. So there's been life on Earth for 4 billion years. So life is tough and the Earth is tough. But but certain little styles of living, they're, they're transient, of course, they're fragile. And the Earth gets hit by big events you know, huge electromagnetic pulses from the sun and other stars and huge million year long volcanic eruptions and caldera and asteroid impacts and stuff. So the earth is tough. It's withstood all of those, but life is precious. And the earth, as far as we can tell, is the only place that life exists so far. We haven't found life anywhere else. There's lots of probabilities out there, but we have found no evidence of life anywhere except on earth so far. And we're looking and maybe we will find it, but we haven't found it yet. So I think you need to balance those when you're on board a spaceship going around the world in 90 minutes. You can see the rugged, self-repairing, ancient nature of the world. You can see the onslaught of life and the flow of it and the undeniable uh, rejuvenated nature of it. Uh, because you go from 56 north to 56 south and you see the whole planet as, as our orbit is tipped from the equator. So you, you get to really, truly understand the world without anybody telling you what to think. You just actually get to see it. The common shared way that we set up towns and villages and cities, it doesn't matter whether you're over Timbuktu or, or, or Timmins or, or Phoenix or, or London, it doesn't matter. That pattern of, of how we choose to live as people is the same worldwide. And our, our common goals, you know, we have different cultures and languages and histories and religions and beliefs, but the stuff that, that is common to us way outweighs the stuff that is different amongst us. We tend to exaggerate the differences naturally enough with just human nature. But I think orbiting the world, you are very much struck by the, the shared nature of human existence and, and the commonality of it and the the transient nature of it, but also the the necessity to to uh, cherish it, and and all of those are part of uh, of being one of the human beings that that gets a chance to orbit the world. And also, I think the, the reason you mentioned at the outset that I'm an author and and um, speaker and such is is to not squander that experience, to let people see it uh, as clearly as possible to try and express it through words or images or music or whatever, to let people truly see where we live and, and the fact that we're, we're all breathing out of the same bubble. I, I think those, those perspectives are fairly new to us as a species. 
you know, it's, it's the result of our new technology that allows us to see ourselves that way. And, um, and, and what we do with that information, I think, is important. Another idea that, you, that you've shared is, is the concept of aiming to be a zero. Can you tell me about that? When I was a young man, I, of course, was very confident. I, like a lot of young men, are you get that sort of bravado and feeling of invincibility. And I was a downhill ski racer and a uh, pilot and, a, and becoming a fighter pilot. And so you, you sort of become oversure of your own decision-making ability. And, and your own ability to do the right thing. And of course, you're nowhere near perfect and, and you make some good decisions and you make some bad ones, but you only see the world through your own eyes. And, and sometimes it gets pretty distorted. And, and I found the natural thing to do, especially when younger, was to assume that no matter what I decided, it was probably right. And the way I tried to explain it to myself was, no matter what I do, I'm going to be a positive influence. If I come into a situation, I look around and a bunch of people are doing stuff, that what they really need is me to tell them what to do, or at least to express my opinion. That'll sort everything out. If I can be a positive, I called myself like I'm a plus one. No matter what I do, I come in as a positive plus one influence. But of course, if you're coming into a complicated situation that's been going on for a while, there are all sorts of subtle influences and factors and history and things that are going on that you're unaware of. And you'll come blundering in with some idea that just occurred to you as if you're the only person that could have thought of that idea. And everybody around you recognizes that you're not a positive, you're a negative, you're a minus one. And everybody around you immediately says, wow, I wait till this guy leaves because I'm an idiot. And so I tried to be slightly more realistic in my own abilities. And instead of just assuming I was a plus one and inevitably under a lot of complex circumstances, in effect, being a minus one, I tried to instead come into a new situation deliberately saying, okay, I'm going to aim initially to be a zero here. I'm just going to aim to actually not cause harm to try and give myself time to notice what's actually happening, to become informed, to become sensitive to the subtleties that actually dictate what's happening here, and then be a lot more selective and deliberate in how I'm going to try and be a plus one and, and be a positive influence. And there are lots of times that won't work. I mean, if, if the classic example is if the building is on fire, it's not time for a nuanced and nuanced interpretation of what needs to be done. You need to take action. You know, if something bad is happening, then you don't have time for consultation. You just have to go with everything you've learned to that point and take action and do your absolute best to be a plus one. But the building is very seldom on fire. And yet we often treat it like it always is. So I think it's good to have a bunch of tricks up your sleeve, but you are better served in life to come into a new situation deliberately targeting yourself as a zero than just assuming that you're going to be a plus one. I think it'll serve you better, but it will also serve the environment around you a lot better. What is one piece of homework that you would give for somebody listening to this conversation that, that they could do to concretely implement some of the ideas that we've talked about today? Two things. One is Find something that you're really interested in, that you're passionate about, that, that expires you, that, that, that raises your pulse just to think about it, that, that makes you want to know more. And start using your free time to become more expert in that area. So actually, you know, if you're interested in, it doesn't matter what, if you're interested in, um, I don't know, trees, it doesn't matter. 
Well, well, spend some time actually studying it, learn about it, become expert in one part of it, and then another part of it. Start making expertise in the areas that you're interested in part of who you are. Try and really tap into what naturally motivates you and then allow yourself the privilege of becoming expert and competent in the areas that, that motivate you. I think that will serve you well no matter what. And the other is have a look at what it is that makes you fearful. And don't just accept the fear, but actually say, why does that make, I can tell when I'm feeling fearful, you know, that unsettled feeling in my gut and I can feel the clamminess of my skin. And that makes me afraid just to deal with that. And then start to treat it clinically. What is it about that that actually is the danger? What is the real problem that I'm trying to solve? How can I change who I am so that I could deal with that problem better? What skill am I lacking? What, why am I allowing myself just to be a terrified little chihuahua here when, when I'm a, a functioning you know, homo sapiens? How can I change who I am so that I'm not just relying on fear to deal with that facet of my life? Because fear to me is, is a destructive long-term solution to anything. It's okay in the short term, but you don't want to have that the way that you deal with something in life. And I think if you balance those two things, that's probably enough homework for today. And Chris, where can listeners find you and, and your books online? Well, the books, of course, are available everywhere. Books, you know, any of the online booksellers, Amazon or something, they can go to chrishadfield.ca. Chris Hadfield, you know, H-A-D-F-I-L-D, chrishadfield.ca. And all of the stuff is available there. And then there's all sorts of, you know, stuff available on online as well. I perform music with symphonies and have various music available and ideas and and the books. And then I speak all over the world. And if you go to chrishadfield.ca, you can look under events and see where and when I'm going to be speaking somewhere nearby. So yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's a world of information and relatively easy to access. But I think if you just Google under my name, then uh, that's probably the best place to start. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your incredible story and all of your wisdom. So many great lessons for the audience. So really, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And I look forward to seeing you in person. Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. In fact, I responded to a number of listener emails this morning from across the globe. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. First, you're going to get our exclusive Mindset Monday email. This is something that listeners have been loving. It's short, simple links, stories, articles, things that have us excited in the last week. Next, you're going to get a chance to shape the show, vote on guests, change the intro music like we rolled out a couple weeks ago, weigh in on guest questions, and much more. Don't miss out on that opportunity. Next, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener feedback and demand. 
which is our most popular guide, how to organize and remember everything. You can get it completely for free along with all the other perks of being on the email list by signing up and joining the email list today at successpodcast.com. And if you join right now, you're going to get another exclusive bonus guide. That's a surprise. It's pretty awesome. It's actually one of my favorites personally, and you can get it just by going to the website, signing up or texting the word smarter. If you're on the go, just text smarter to the number four, four, two, two, two. Remember the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. And don't forget, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we talk about on the show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get them at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.